we're going to be looking at Leviticus 17 to 20. And obviously, in light of that, we're not going to be reading all of the verses. And maybe some of you are a little dis disappointed that I'm going this quickly through this section, but I have a reason for it. A large part of the reason is because there's so many children present, and I doubt you would want me to do a deep dive on some of these things, especially chapter 18, unless you want to have some really uncomfortable conversations on the way home, okay? Um, but the other thing is this, because you know I'm not afraid to have the awkward conversation, guys. But the other thing that I want to um, stress is this reality. There's an undercurrent here in these chapters that is consistent. And that undercurrent has to do with your culture. Has to do with cultural expectations, how you view the world versus how the kingdom of God views the world. Now, um, culture is a funny thing because culture is really more absorbed than learned. And, and it's, I don't want to say like, oh, well, you don't understand. But the truth is that you really don't become aware of your own culture until you live cross-culturally or you spend an extended period of time cross-culturally. So I know that we have people in this room who, you know, they go back and forth to other countries or they're from another country or you've traveled a lot. But the truth is that you don't really become aware of your culture until you live somewhere else because culture is just kind of how we're raised. We learn it by osmosis. And so, one, there's a, for example, there's a guy who I'm training right now. He's from Pakistan. He's a young guy in his 20s. He's super formal. And so, if he accidentally interrupts you when we're on the call, he doesn't just say, oh, I'm sorry. He's like, Brother William John, it was vastly inappropriate for me to overstep you and to talk at that time. What I have to say will only take a minute, maybe two minutes at best, Brother John. And this is how he talks to me. And the other guys on the call who are from Afghanistan and Egypt, they're trying not to laugh, right? It's a cultural thing. That's just his culture. Some of the things in Spain, um, when we lived in Spain, they were super blunt. But it was actually nice because you didn't feel like you were being lied to. So it, it would be January and your friends would come up and they'd say, you're gaining weight. <laughs> and you'd be like... Thank you. Thanks for noticing. I don't like your haircut. That shirt does not look good on you. As opposed to in the United States where we understand, no, you just lie to someone. Does this make me look fat? No. Not at all. Right? And so we have a cultural expectation where it's okay to lie in those situations. Um, in Indonesia, when you would take out your money, you hide it. It's very inappropriate for people to see your money. And so they would, they would like take out their wallet and they take the money out. Whereas we just like throw our wallet on the counter. You know, we leave it there. We're like thumbing through dollar bills. <laughs> you know what I mean? That sort of thing. This is cultural expectations. When we were in Japan, we thought it interesting. And by interesting, I mean strange that they only would heat the room they were in. Right? Whereas in the United States, we heat our whole house. Even when we're not in our house, we heat our house. Just in case our house gets cold, right? Um, but in Japan, they would only heat the room they're in, which meant in the middle of the night, you would get up and you'd go to the bathroom, and it was January, and the toilet seat was 45 degrees. <laughs> True story, okay? And so uh, these are cultural things. But this is what I want to stress to you today. As believers, yes, we are born into a culture, but then we are reborn into a new culture. 
All right, John 3, 3, if you want to write down some verses, John 3, 3, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What is the new culture to which we are born? The kingdom of God. John 17, 11, as well as verses 14 to 15, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, this is Jesus praying, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, as much as we would like that sometimes, but that you keep them from the evil one. And so the idea here is that when you are reborn, because you become a follower of Jesus, you place your faith in Christ, what his, his death, burial, and resurrection, the, you are reborn and you become part of a new kingdom, a new family. This is one of the things that baptism represents. And what happens over time as you now live cross-culturally, right? Because now you're living cross-culturally, and I'm not trying to make like a, a funny play on words, cross-culturally. No, I mean, you're literally living cross-culturally. You're from another culture, a kingdom culture. You're living in the culture of the world. Now, unlike before, you begin to see the tensions and the incongruencies between your, your heart culture, which is a new heart, the kingdom of God, and this host culture, the kingdom of the world. Are you guys following me so far? Okay. And so this is why Jesus says in the Lord's Prayer, he says, pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so we go out as ambassadors of Christ into this host culture as representatives from a kingdom culture. We live cross-culturally as foreigners in this world, or as Peter says, as exiles in this world, or as James says, in dispersion, right? These are all the ways that we live because this is no longer our culture. And this is what I want you guys to realize. These chapters, Leviticus 17 to 20, this is exactly what's going on with ancient Israel. So they were raised where? In Egypt, then God brings them on a new birth. They pass through water in the crossing of the Red Sea, which signifies and points to baptism and new creation, as the New Testament tells us. They're newly created, and they form a new kingdom where God is going to be their king, and they're going to be his people, and he gives them a law which governs how his people will look. And now they have a new worldview. They cannot look Remember, the law was not around when they were in Egypt, okay? And so they cannot look the way they looked in Egypt. They cannot act like the Egyptians, and they also cannot act like the country, the people where they're going in um, Canaan. And the, the point of all this is that as they mature and as they learn more about God, as they learn more about their faith, as they learn more about this new kingdom of God, they're previous culture of Egypt comes face to face with this new culture of the kingdom of God, and then the practices and processes of their former life stand in stark opposition to this new kingdom culture and this new kingdom, um, just this new kingdom. So that's the, that is the undercurrent of chapter 17 to 20, that the Israelites needed to allow God to define their worldview instead of allowing their worldview to be defined by the Egyptian culture or the Canaanite culture, all right? Listen, um, bear with me, 
right? Don't zone out on me. I know some of you guys are bored. This is a kick in the face kind of message. And I literally said to Gina, I don't know if I want to do four weeks of kick in the face in a row because it's going to be too much. This is heavy. This is heavy stuff. Leviticus 18, 1 to 5. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived. And you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules. You shall keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does not, if a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. See, what we are going to find as we look at these chapters is that there is a tension that exists in our own lives as well as followers of Jesus because Jesus' kingdom and his kingdom ethic are in stark opposition to the ethic of the world, okay? And so God's ethic is defined by love. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself is from these chapters, okay? And so as you go through these, I'd encourage you to read these chapters on your own. As you, as you go through these and you say, well, why this law? Keep asking yourself, how does this law either reflect God's love for God or love for, love for people? Because we're called to love God with this wholehearted devotion, and we're called to love our neighbor with selfless instead of selfish love. And so as you read these verses, the world will say to you, but that's the Old Testament. It doesn't exist anymore. But realize what the author is discussing the principle of love extends even for today. And so even though we do not necessarily follow the letter of the law because the law has been fulfilled in Christ, we do follow the spirit of the law, which remains the same because God is immutable, which means he's unchanging. And so specifically, we're going to highlight three areas today, and then we're going to pray. And the three areas that we want to focus on that are in these chapters are these three areas the way the world views illicit worship, the way the world views illicit worship, the way the world views sexuality, and the way the world views children. Okay? Those are the three things that we want to touch on. First is illicit worship. Well, what is illicit worship? Well, worship, if you were going to define spirituality, it's how the physical world interacts with the spiritual world around us. Okay? And so I just want to read a couple of the sections from these chapters so that you can get an understanding of, how the, how, of what God is saying. And this is how the ancient world viewed illicit worship, how the ancient world viewed spirituality. And, and hear me out if you want to write this at like the beginning of chapter 17. In a word, how does the world in the ancient Near East, how did the world view worship? It views worship as this manipulation. Everything in paganism is about manipulating your God, okay? It's, and, and you're going to see that we have these same ideas in our, own, in our own culture, okay? 
So let me just read some of these verses. Verse uh, chapter 17. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, to all the people of Israel, and say to them, This is the thing the Lord has commanded. He's talking about the Day of Atonement. And if any one of the house of Israel kills an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp or kills it outside the camp and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer as a gift to the Lord in front of the tabernacle, blood guilt, in other words, he shall be guilty of murder, blood guilt shall be imputed to the man. He has shed blood, that man shall be cut off from his people. He's disowned. This is, to the, this is to the end that the people of Israel may bring their sacrifices that they sacrifice in the open field, that they may bring them to the Lord, to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and they may sacrifice, they may sacrifice them as sacrifices of peace offerings to the Lord, and the priest shall throw the blood on the altar at the entrance of the tent of meeting and burn the flat, fat for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Verse 7. So they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons after whom they whore. Okay? Now, what you're going to notice is that the language in these chapters is super strong. It's super strong language. And so what's going on here? The idea is that in the ancient Near East, in Egypt and in Canaan, you did sacrifices all the time for all kinds of stuff. You want to bless your crops? Kill an animal. You want to do this? Kill an animal. You don't like your neighbor? You want to curse them? Kill an animal. And so he's saying, no, 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 you don't do that. You don't go out into the field and just, you know, you are mad at your neighbor, so you kill a bird and you throw the bird on his lawn as a curse. That's not what you do. You're not going to sacrifice these to these demonic, to these goat demons, right? We all think goats are a little demonic, and now you know why, okay? To these goat demons, that's not the way God's people worship. Verse 10, if anyone of the house of Israel or the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood. I will cut him off from his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Therefore, I have said to the people of Israel, no person among you shall eat blood, neither any stranger who sojourns among you eat blood. This same thing is reinforced when the Gentiles come to faith in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 15, when they're debating circumcision, they say, just please don't eat food that's got blood in it. You see, because the idea here is that those were pagan practices, completely normal to, to drink the blood of an animal as part of a ritual, a pagan ritual to accomplish some purpose. All right, so these are the things that we're seeing. I'm going to jump now to chapter 19, verse 26. You shall not eat any flesh with the blood in it. You shall not interpret omens or tell fortunes. You shall not round off the hair on your temples or mar the edges of your beard. That's what the pagans did. You shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves. I am the Lord. Verse 31, do not turn to mediums. That's a psychic, okay? Or necromancers. Necromancers are people who would bring up the dead. Do not seek them out and so make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. Chapter 20. The Lord spoke to Moses, say to the people of Israel, any one of the people of Israel or the strangers who sojourn in Israel who gives any of his children to Moloch as a child sacrifice shall be put to death. Verse 3, I myself will set my face against that man. Verse 4, and if the people of the land close their eyes to that man, in other words, if Frank, I know Frank's always our, our example, if Frank sacrifices his child to Moloch and we don't do anything about him, God holds us responsible. Okay, this is what we see in these chapters. 
And so what we see, if you were going to broadly summarize the, the patterns we see of the worship of the world here, you have under the guise of spirituality, you have demonic worship. Okay, you have goat demons, you have the occult. All those things that I read have to do with the occult. Psychics, necromancers, soothsayers, fortune tellers, mediums, all those things. They are classified as demonic and occult. And God, when he says don't do them, this is why he says don't do it. He says, I am the Lord. So why don't I do it? Because I am the Lord. That's why you don't do it. They're not the Lord. They're not your God. They're not the one who saved you out of Egypt. I'm the one who did that. And so how does God feel about these things? All of these things. That means from psychics to tarot cards. That means from mediums. It means any subtle manipulation when we try to manipulate the spiritual world by using the tactics and processes of the world. This is how God feels. He says in these chapters, they're detestable to him. He likens them to being a whore. That's the word he uses. I'm literally reading the scripture. He likens it to spiritual whoredom. And he says that person should be cut off from their people. And anyone who ignores their behavior should be cut off. That's super strong. And why? Well, God's people are supposed to be directly different. God says, I am the Lord. There is one God, right? That's Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. The Lord is your God. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. He's one God. And as we unpacked earlier in Leviticus, he wants to be worshipped in spirit. In other words, genuine worship, not going through the motions, and truth as he defines it. Okay, how does this relate to our society? If you were going to just generally speaking to, to say what is our spiritual culture like in the United States as well as our own town, it's we have a spiritual buffet approach. In other words, I, I, I go to church, but I also go to this psychic once a month, and she's actually been super accurate. Yeah, she is. Do you want to know why? It's demonic. I'm not saying it's a farce. I'm saying it's demonic. You're, put, you're toying with demons, with your spirit guide. This is the type of stuff that, that we, this is our world. This isn't, um, you know, the, the world is spirit and is physical. And so our world, in our world, is very common to have a spiritual buffet approach. I'm this, I'm that, I'm a Christian, I'm also a Buddhist, I also do this, I also do that, and we pick and choose what we want. And this is the reality that we have to re come to realize we do not define biblical truth. Biblical truth defines us. God defines truth for us. We don't get to say, I don't like this passage. I don't like this part. This is, this is so outdated. Now, there's explanations for confusing passages for sure, right? But this isn't a, this isn't a joke. Paul says to not give the enemy a foothold. And a foothold are things, anything small and innocent, like a Milton Bradley Ouija board. These are the, this is an example of footholds, okay? The spiritual world is not for us to toy with. It's not for us to manipulate. It's us for 
It's for to, uh, us for us to pray against. As Paul says in Ephesians 6, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against spir- spiritual authorities, powers, and dominions, all that referring to demons in the spiritual realm. Okay, the second big theme is all of chapter 18. If you have questions about that stuff, you're going to have to email me or text me, okay? Um, so the second big theme is sexuality. How does the ancient world view sexuality? Well, you can look in chapter 18. I read the first five verses already where he says you can't do what the world does. And then I'm, I'm not going to read all of this. I just want to read some of it so you get the general idea. None of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, your mother. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It's your father's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your sister, whether brought up in the family or in another home. That's stepsister. In other words, even if it's from a different parent, okay? You shall not uncover the nakedness of your son's daughter, your daughter's daughter, because it is your own nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife, brought up in the father's house. She is your sister. Uncover the nakedness of your father's sister. And it goes on and on and on. If you were going to summarize those generally, what would that be summarized as? Incest. Okay? You shall not uncover the nakedness of your daughter-in-law. She's your son's wife. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It's your brother's nakedness. You shall not... Take a woman as a rival wife to her sister, uncovering her nakedness. You shall not approach a woman to uncover nakedness while she's in her menstrual cycle. All these things. Okay? Verse, third, verse 21. You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Moloch. We're going to go back to that. Let's jump to verse 25. I'm going to skip some of the other stuff. Do not make yourselves unclean, verse 24, by any of these things. This is important. For by all these, the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean, and the land has become unclean, so that I have, so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. Okay? And so, how does the ancient world view sexuality? The rest of the stuff I'm not going to read out loud, because I don't want you to have to explain it to your kids. Okay? How does the, the ancient world view sexuality? Anything goes. That's how the ancient world views sexuality. You want to do it? Do it. Um, it's even, and guess what? Ancient Near Eastern thought, it's even worse when the woman does it. With men, it's like, well, they're dirtbags anyway. Right? But it's even worse when the women do it. How does God feel about these things? You know what's interesting? And it's probably not the good word choice. You know what's interesting about these things? is that there's something unique about sexual sin. Um, and you'll see this in, if you think about it this way, the flood with the Nephilim, good thing we didn't have a podcast on that, um, with the flood with the Nephilim, it's a, it results in a sexual sin. Sodom and Gomorrah, it results in a sexual sin. Okay, um, When... Jacob winds up taking all of these rival wives and they wind up prostituting him out for mandrakes. It's a sexual sin. Okay? Continues, continues, continues forward. You look at the sin of Balaam, it winds up being a sexual sin. Um, the sin of worshiping the golden calves, it winds up being a sexual sin. It says they, rise up, they rose up to play. All right? That's the way that it's described in Corinthians. Um, 
Second Peter, when it starts unpacking all of the issues of the ancient world as Peter is explaining these processes, he says it results in sexual sin. Jude, it results in sexual sin. There's something unique about sexual sin, and this is why I think so. With sexual sin, you sin against God, you sin against the person, and you sin against yourself. Paul puts it this way. He says every sin is outside the body except for sexual sin, which is a sin against your body. And you see it here in these passages when he talks about how you're making yourself unclean, how you are bringing yourself into, into depravity. And so you're sinning against yourself. That's how God views this. In, these, in these, this chapter, you're going to see that God uses words like abomination, detestable, depravity, perversion. I also read it in the, in the NLT. And at one point in time, it's like, don't do this. It's gross. I mean, that literally, that's what it said. Okay? So how are God's people commanded to view sexuality? This is the way the ancient Near East view sexuality. How should God's people? God makes it really clear. He says that these things are between a man and a woman. Okay? He says these things are between a husband and a wife. And this is probably, and those we say, oh yeah, we know those. This is the one that we forget, okay? And this is relevant even to those of you who are married. He says that these things are about love over passion, which another way of saying that would be selfless love over selfish love. Because the truth is that you can behave like a pagan when you treat your sexuality within your marriage as something simply to get pleasure for yourself instead of realizing that you are commanded to be a servant lover and not a selfish lover. You guys tracking with me? So how does this relate to our world today? Um, and I'm not joking, almost every single example in this chapter is accepted, is celebrated, or very close to by our culture. Can I tell you that over the last two months, as I read the news, I've read articles, and you've probably seen some of this stuff circling the news as well. I've read articles arguing in support of incest. I've read professors who argue for pedophilia. I have read numerous articles about orientation, as we all have. I even saw an article, I didn't read it, but I saw the article, where it was a mom and a daughter who were bragging about how they date the same boy. Okay, that example is literally given in chapter 18 as detestable. Our world accepts all of this, and our world celebrates it. And our world says, if you don't celebrate it, there's something wrong with you, okay? Paul says in Romans 1, that we invent new ways of sinning and applaud those who do it. This is what I want you to know. We do not define biblical sexuality. God defines it for us. Okay? The third thing is children. You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Moloch, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Do not profane your daughter by making her a prostitute. 
lest the land fall into prostitution and the land become full of depravity. You shall keep my Sabbath and reverence my sanctuary. The Lord spoke to Moses, chapter 20. Say to the people of Israel, any one of the people of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn in Israel who gives any of his children to Moloch shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. I myself will set my face against the man and cut him off from among his people because he's given one of his children to Moloch to make my sanctuary unclean and to profane my holy name. And if the people of the land do at all close their eyes to that man when he gives one of his children to Moloch and do not put him to death, I will set my face against that man and against his clan and I will cut them off from among their people and all who follow him in whoring after Moloch. Moloch was a god of the Canaanites. And um, in the worship of Moloch, there was a bronze statue, kind of like had like the face of a bull, body of a man. And it was outstretched like this. And they would build a campfire around the base, and they would place the child in its arms. And I'll let you fill out, figure out the rest. That was Moloch's sacrifices. Temple prostitution was a simple thing. You can't pay for your kid, you can sell them. Just like what happened in Afghanistan a few months ago after we withdrew. It's still happening today. You have a debt you want, can't pay, you can give your daughter. They're viewed as disposable in the ancient Near East. If you want to say, how were children viewed in the pagan world, they're viewed as disposable used for sacrifice, used for prostitution. But as we know, that is not how God views children. God views children as a blessing from the Lord. He commands us to be fruitful and multiply. We know that all people um, started as children and that they are made in the image of God. We know that Jesus says, don't prevent the children from coming to me. He says, you need to have faith like a child. And he says, and if you do anything to hinder or harm these, it would be better if a millstone was tied around your neck and you were thrown into the heart of the ocean. How does this relate to our world today? Abortion is far more destructive, seductive, surreptitious, and widespread than Moloch's sacrifice ever was. And far more children have died to it than Moloch's sacrifice. The truth is this. The United States of America, among other countries, we are far worse than Canaanites ever were. Maybe cult prostitution is not the norm but our social media and the way that our culture views social media has made prostitution exceptionally easy. By putting phones in front of our 10-year-old daughters and encouraging them to become obsessed with everything from TikTok to Snapchat and eventually things like OnlyFans. And then we wonder, how did that happen? This is the world we've created. And the problem is this. We do not get to define which lives are disposable. 
God treasures all life. So what does this mean for us? Well, what I want you to realize is that those themes are heavy, right? And you're probably glad I didn't talk about them for four, a month, okay? There's a consistent theme that runs through these chapters, and this is the theme. You ready? Quote, it is on account of these things that the judgment of God is coming. The Torah was written on the cusp of the conquest. In other words, these five books of the Bible were written right before Joshua and his army were commanded to go into Canaan and to kill the Canaanites. Israel was responsible to this new king, to this new kingdom, to be holy as I am holy, and then, quite literally, although it's not popular to talk about, to go to war. But what about us? I want you to know that I truly believe, I do not believe for a moment that there is any hope of saving our nation without a massive movement towards repentance. I don't care who's in power. We are under divine judgment. Call me a freak. We are. We're under judgment. And we see these things in the scriptures. But this is what I want you to know. Jesus came as the greater Joshua. Actually, their names are very similar in the original language. Jesus came as the greater Joshua, and he came on a conquest as well, though probably not the way that we think of it. He didn't fight against flesh and blood. Instead, he fought against spiritual powers and dominions. Instead of killing the Canaanites, he, he, he healed the sick, he cast out demons, and he proclaimed, heralded, the good news of the king. And then he sends us on our own conquest. When you look at Matthew 28, 16 to 20, it's very much a military commissioning, right? And he sends us on our own conquest. And so it's the same things that were true of the Israelites, bear with me, are true of us. First, like the Israelites, we are called to be holy as he is holy. Colossians 3, 5 to 10, put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly in you. In other words, put to death anything that's not from the kingdom culture, and that's from the culture of the world. Well, what are those things? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetedness, which is idolatry. Because, verse 6, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. And so you can say, well, God doesn't work that way anymore. That was the old covenant. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now, because you've been born again, you must put them away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk. Do not lie, seeing that you've put on the old, taken off the old self with his practices and put on the new self. First, I want you to know this. You need forgiveness. <laughs> All of us begin as part of the kingdom of Satan. This isn't about do better, try harder. This is about the fact that whether you've had 10 abortions, whether you've been the most disgusting person on the planet, in Jesus, your sins can be wiped clean because his blood is sufficient. And then, having received his forgiveness and blood, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so don't mishear me. I'm not here today making you feel bad because you're not good enough. I'm speaking to God's people who have received his grace. We are commanded to put to death, to put away, to remove the things of the world that used to define us 
but no longer define us anymore because the wrath of God is coming on account of these things. And as Peter argues in 2 Peter, is throughout God's history, he has preserved the godly while waiting and, and being patient with the wicked so that he can one day punish the wicked while redeeming and saving the godly. We are godly not because we don't do these things, but because of Jesus. The second thing that we are commanded to do, like the Israelites, is go to war. Not in a crusade, but with our prayers. Ephesians 6, 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, and the cosmic powers over this present darkness. All of those terms in Paul's uh, framework of writing refer to demons, spiritual powers. Even rulers and authorities, those are spiritual rulers, spiritual authorities in Paul's world. Against the forces of evil, where? In the heavenly places. There is a battle waging war around us that we cannot see, but is far more the reality than what we see in front of us. But we get distracted by what we can see. We are called to go to war with our prayers and tear down these things in the power of Christ, in the name of Christ, the power of the Spirit. And the third thing is this, um, we sound the alarm. Paul says in Colossians 1, 28 to 29, him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that powerfully works within me. Paul would warn people. He would teach people. And the result of that is maturity. And so realize what happens in the old covenant becomes a object lesson, so to say, for us in the new covenant as beneficiaries of the new covenant. Okay? And so the idea is that as there was a physical conquest, now there's a spiritual conquest. As, they, as the Israelites were called to go to war against these things, we are called to pray against these things because the real culprit is not the person who does these things, but the spiritual power that manipulates them from behind the scene. So what we want to do now is I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing. And if there was one thing that I could say to you that I want you to leave this sermon is with this. Pray. Pray. You pray against these things. You pray for the salvation of the wicked that they might see Christ and be forgiven and be made new. We pray that God would tear down structures of oppression. We pray for repentance on every level of our government, in every level of our society. And without these things, there will be no hope. There'll just be more bandages on gushing wounds. And then the end will come. The truth, guys, is we have no guarantee. We don't know when Jesus is coming back. We know he's going to come back in a thief, like a thief. We, you'll have people all over the spectrum who will debate about whether we'll be here, whether we won't be here. I know there's various views on all these things. Um, but don't assume that just because America has been a blessed nation that God is turning a, a blind eye to a multitude of cultural sins. 
okay? We are not a godly nation. We are a wicked nation that needs to repent. Would you bow your heads as I pray? Would you, we cry out to God? Father God, Lord, um, all week I've not really known how to address these things and approach these things, Lord. But Lord, I know what we need. What we need is to pray. And prayer is so hard. I don't know why it's so hard, God. It's so hard to get on our faces and to labor in prayer over these things, Lord. It's, it's so much easier to read about them on the news or talk about them around our kitchen table, but not actually lay down on our faces and cry out to you. God, I pray that we would be more aware of the spiritual world around us and that these things are real and we're not just weirdos if we think they're real. They are real. The powers of darkness are real. The powers of the enemy are real. Demons are real. These things are real and they're toxic and they seek to derail us and destroy us and undo us. God, I pray that your people, like you say in the book of Revelation to those living in Babylon, you say, come out of her, my people, and never go back again. God, I pray right now for those in the room who are enslaved to these things, whether that's enslaved to action or to shame or condemnation, I pray in the name of Christ that they would come out of these things and they would enter into the rest and forgiveness of their master. God, I pray that we would realize these things are not casual, that these things are not no big deal, but that these things, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the world. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon our nation. But you are patient, not desiring any to perish, but all to have eternal life. Your patience is not indifference. Your patience is mercy so that more can hear and respond. Lord, I pray if there's anyone in this room who needs to respond, they would toss their embarrassment and shame aside. And they would throw their arms to you and worship God and cry out to you to redeem their soul from the pit. Father God, we ask that you would open up our eyes.